0: Welcome to the Realizing Genius Podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Christensen. This is where we dive in each week to chat about parenting, education, and realizing our children's genius. I'm an educator with a background in individualizing learning, and I'm obsessed with helping people find and nurture that genius in their children and themselves. Let's dive in. Hi, geniuses. Today, I'm here with Nate Norlander from... The nomadic professor, Nate. So good to have you here today.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad to be here and uh, looking forward to to talking about history and what we can offer.
0: Awesome. Yeah, now you have been, you are definitely nomadic. Uh, I was looking at your bio and you have been to China several times. It, It sounds like for a while since you were actually teaching there.
1: Yeah. Um so I taught in China for about five years combined, but on three separate stints. Um the first one I I was it was just sort of a you know break from college. I went and taught English for a year. Um, and you know, you make good money and you get to do fun things, so that was good. But then the next two I taught at international schools. Um I taught IGCSE and AS uh, Cambridge curriculum for two years and then I taught um, IB curriculum for two years, um, theory of knowledge and history and English. So hopefully um, those were good, informative, rigorous curriculums that you you can see in evidence in some of the work we do with the nomadic professor.
0: Yeah, when you live in a different country, how does that affect your view of history?
1: Um, well, let me, let me pause. I'm in my, or or back up in my last answer. I meant to draw attention to the fact that I was, um, for a period of, I don't know, seven or eight years, we sort of moved between the States and China. Um, and, and, you know, did some traveling around, uh, Asia and and other areas while we were there. So maybe semi-nomadic in that way, the, the real nomadic element of our course is the professor who's who's on the road in a more literally nomadic way based in Cairo now but filming you know everywhere we need for the courses for interesting historical insights etc so that kind of nomadic approach I think really fits with um the subject of history because you Get to be in the places, you get to meet the people, you get to understand alternative points of view and all of those things. So I guess maybe that brings it back somewhat to your question of how does living abroad inform your understanding of history? Is that sort of the the thrust of the question?
0: Yeah.
1: Um well, I mean, in a in a less sort of fundamental way, it it was interesting in China to uh, learn very different points of view about some things that we take for granted in America, like whether Taiwan is an independent country. Some people take that for granted. It was very taboo um, in my history classes. Uh, What is the status of Hong Kong? Um, What was the nature of the agreement that brought it to this current status? And uh, my textbooks, you know, I, I there were certain subjects I couldn't cover and certain subjects I was told to cover in one way or another, in very explicit ways. Um, and so that maybe is just a case study of how being a broad um, brought another sort of political perspective, the regulation of information, and all of this into play in a different way than I had ever experienced in the States. And so that informed my understanding of how is information disseminated? What does a person in China versus a person in Mongolia versus a person in Taiwan versus an American think about foreign policy between Chinese and whoever else? Um, And so I think that, you know, it sort of trickles down into the way you understand the past in other contexts because you realize The dissemination of information access to information teaching methods values and priorities are different from one place to the next and in one period of time to the next and i think that um living abroad maybe sort of opened my eyes to that in a way that it it hadn't been uh, they hadn't been opened before at least not as as viscerally yeah i love you know this
0: nomadic professor idea just because you are bringing your students into that place. If they can't, they can't all go there. We just, it's an impossibility for everyone to have that experience, but taking them there gives them just a a small feeling of that, which I think is so important.
1: Yeah, a lot of people are very, they love the concept and they want to be nomadic themselves, practically speaking, there are a lot of logistical challenges. The professor has um, four kids that he has traveled with and homeschooled on the road. And so that has its own huge opportunities and huge logistical and other challenges. Um, And so that's one of the aspects that people, that come to mind when people think nomadic professor, like, oh, I'd like to do that. Mm -hmm. But obviously what we're trying to emphasize, not only is that, experience valuable for the young people who are with him right his kids but we can incorporate an element of that kind of on setting um sights and sounds of a place into the courses and we we really want that and see it as a, a, a sort of natural point of connection with young people that's engaging informative valuable in in of the ways you talked about as opposed to going there at least you can see the sights and sounds and hear the point of view of someone who's traveling through the place
0: yeah yeah i know i mean i haven't done a lot of traveling outside of um the united states but i spent a month in spain and and was able to i mean just seeing the aqueducts it's just going out of the united states the united states is so young
1: (laughs) compared to anywhere else really it seems like yeah really you look at cathedrals in europe or temples yeah. in asia and the sort of depth of character that exists because of all these historical stories that are centuries old and yet these physical manifestations are still around and we we sort of tore through them the, the feeling and character of something that's a thousand years old versus 75 years old it somehow seems sort of tangible or visible uh even yeah. though you know it's 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 it may not be in a way that you could easily identify but there's definitely a a a depth of experience to these places that are thousands of years old versus a couple hundred
0: yeah i think it also kind of adds to you know how a culture you know, and the people who are living that culture respond just to everything, really. I and I, I think it was there's a a movie, a documentary about. I think it was Estonia. Was it Estonia that had the thing? It's called the Singing Revolution, and how the anyway, it was. It's a, a great movie, and it talks about how this this country was constantly being invaded. And it really, um, it affected how the people were thinking, how they thought, how they responded. And it just really, I I use it in some classes to um, help students understand why people think differently in different areas of the world, how they have you know, these different um viewpoints because of what they've done and, and how the united states is has their own
1: yeah so. i think it's really easy to overlook how historical context and sort of just the development of the culture and politics of a place inform outlook and so we take for granted like well duh this political system is good and that one's bad or this leader's good and that one's bad or this historical event is should be judged this way, not that way. And it, it all seems very easy because we have a certain tradition and point of view that don't readily reveal the complications and nuances that might exist for someone in a different set of shoes. So for example, in our free speech course, um we recount sort of the early European movements to the US or to the Americas and the way that say the Spanish for example who had been conquered and oppressed and escaped that oppression to move to the Americas and enact their own version of it here and enact their own kind of social political and religious controls here and appreciating the complexity of context and experience and the way it results and impacts in in an understanding and point of view uh is is just a huge advantage to being to knowing about other places and peoples yeah it could, it makes you more empathetic i think more charitable
0: yeah i agree i always people that I I look at history as the ultimate self-help class (laughs) (laughs) because you can learn so much and if you can apply it to yourself your own life um
1: yeah I I think it it also has just sort of inherent humbling effect on people because there's too much information sometimes it's very murky hard to parse there there are very rarely really easy moral lessons to be pulled from this or that. And so, you know, it, you, you can kind of come away from a study of history feeling like sometimes I'm a little too confident in my judgments about the world. Yeah. It's, you know, it's connects to our last point as well. Like there's complexity and nuance and murkiness in other people's stories. And we see one uh, event and, and, it seems easy to judge, but when you study history, you sort of learn to be a little more careful about making quick judgments, I guess.
0: I definitely agree with that. I and mean, we have to, we have to be careful with that, especially today. There's so many, so many people who are putting out and I, I know I'm guilty of it sometimes too, where everything is black and white. This is right. This is wrong. And we have to be more open to be able to listen to other people's viewpoints.
1: Yeah. Not to turn this into like a a self-help course, because it's not, but there, there are sort of these side effects of being um, rigorous or careful or honest and sincere in your study of the past. Um, I mentioned in the presentation before that we try to integrate other disciplines into our course. One of those is rhetoric and logic. And um, so we teach the development of arguments. We teach parsing of other people's arguments. And in all of that, um, you sort of uh, can come to appreciate a a kind of epistemic humility, um, knowing the limits of your understanding um, and being open to the the arguments and point of view of another you know person with uh, a good faith, I, I think those are all important and relevant um, sort of side effects or or key elements of studying history, depending on how you approach it.
0: Yeah, now the presentation that you have um done for the conference this year is about uh the YouTube generation. Can you just give us a couple of things about this YouTube generation? What makes this generation this way?
1: Um so I, I guess I'll respond based on my experience in the classroom. Um, yeah. So I I've was in the classroom full time from 2012 to 2020. And and in the last two years, I've been doing this, this online curriculum. Um, but my experience with students is that uh, I, I don't want to obsessively focus on technology, but it's a lens that I can't help but look through first. Um, I, i'm a, a bit nervous about the impacts and and unforeseen consequences of um the speed efficiency and entertainment entertainment value of some of the technologies young people have access to it's sort of they live in a world with i mean depending on you know the family the 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 country the whatever access to this or that obviously this is a a generalized statement but a lot of the students I worked with seem to be sort of growing up in a world with very few boundaries because they have access to whatever whatever information they want it comes extremely fast Um, and if they're bored there are a thousand and one ways to alleviate that in a way that doesn't require any work or sacrifice or input from the person, so that all of this kind of makes me nervous about, uh, you know, the capacity for a, a young person to confront a challenge and and overcome it. Um, you know, some of this will prove in thirty years to just be a, a conservative old luddite, like afraid to adopt new technologies but you know some of it we're still trying to figure our way through how can we help students um like utilize technology and not be commandeered by its the expectations it foists upon the world and, and i think now we're we're in the latter camp the students are being massively uh their expectations and experience of the world are being dictated by the capacity of the technology they use. So the speed of their cell phone, the entertainment of their iPad or Netflix or whatever, all of this is, is orienting toward them toward the world in a way that makes me a little bit um, anxious for the results. And so when you ask about the YouTube generation, I don't mean to like harp on this, like these are just a bunch of dumb kids who only like TV. I'm not trying to say that. Um, yeah, but I do feel like there is a there's an important void to be filled or an important message to to be flagged about transitioning into some of these technologies slowly. Um, you know, giving our students access to some of these technologies at age appropriate levels as the brain develops, and all, you know, we 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 just want to. Go carefully into some of these places, and so I, I, you know, coming from the perspective of a high school teacher and someone who's into history and philosophy, this point of view is probably not surprising. But that's, you know, part of what informs uh, my point of view. Now, I guess um, I it would I should address um, the professor's point of view. I'm coming at this from a, a kind of literacy point of view, I, I, you know, maybe that's high school is better suited for teaching these foundational skills. Um, and by college students are, should be equipped with them. And so I think the focus in college is, um, somewhat different. Uh, the YouTube generation now, I'm not, I don't want to put too many words in the professor's mouth. So I'm going to try to channel how he, how he would answer this question. But I think one element is in a virtual setting, we have the opportunity to address a new generation of students in a totally new way that is outside of the brick and mortar classroom. They can be brought to new settings. They can engage with the world through the medium of the internet, video, audio, all the stuff that didn't exist you know, just a few decades ago. Um, so I think that's a, a critical element that he would add to the conversation, as well as just the importance of history for muddying the waters a little bit, for slowing down our certainties, um, and learning to appreciate complexity and uh, nuance. And when you engage with what seems like the simplest, most narrow historical story or event or person, you quickly discover that confidence is not always justified or black and white thinking is not, it's almost never justified. So that appreciating that point of view, I think is something he would add to the conversation.
0: One of the things I, I just really love about what you have shared, um, both in the presentation and in this podcast is about um really meeting the needs of students in different ways. And I know with the structure that you talk about, you know, you include some of that kinesthetic uh, learning and then uh, the, obviously the videos, it's more, um, more visual, but you also have that audio. I think there's so many students that if you just put a textbook in front of them. I know I, I didn't like history until I started homeschooling my kids. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't like it at all. And then I started homeschooling my kids and doing all these fun things and watching videos and watching, you know, doing, um doing projects and and looking at maps. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. Yeah. And um. I think for years without the addition of, you know, just getting creative in the history classroom, um, you know, when you're teaching history without that creativity and these additional uh, ways of teaching it, we, we've, we lost so many people and so many kids, so many people today, so many adults I talk to, they just, well, I, I don't like history. How am I gonna teach it? You yeah. know, and it's, it- it's really sad.
1: The YouTube element can be a a sort of double-edged sword. Um, We we hope that that is kind of a hook Mm -hmm. um, into the content, um, because if it becomes the substance of the content, then a student really is just perpetuating the expectation that everything should be entertaining. And as soon as the video is over, they don't want to read the text. So we do have parents who say, you know, I really want to take this course or we're enjoying the course, but how can we take the videos off YouTube because my student goes down a rabbit hole or whatever. Um, So it's a double-edged sword. We're we're utilizing the technology we're bringing the setting to life, but we are working with young people without um, the ability to (laughs) forestall their expectations for, you know, whatever pleasure they want to enjoy in some other video. Um, And so that's, we have to balance the approach. Um, We hope that the videos on top of all the other benefits we've we've covered are a hook into the content. And the student goes on or or, or utilizes the videos as a part of learning to think carefully, learning and mastering the historical story, learning to read and write in, in sophisticated ways We want the videos to be a part of that, but it it is a challenge, you know, to utilize YouTube in a way where it doesn't become the message. You know, a student, they like videos, not just because the history is cool, but because they're easy and entertaining, you know, you know, it can, it can be entertaining to learn history through videos. And so we, we try to walk that line in a, in a way that works, but, you know, it's, it's a balance that I I think has to be renegotiated in, in every day. And and it's, it's a challenge to not allow the medium to become the message. (laughs) That, that is very true. Just being a tool within, you know, the overall objective.
0: Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think that we can ever, I, I hope that they never get rid of the meet that, that all of those books, um, those, you know, going deep into that. I know I, I work, I've worked with students who are doing this online. I mean, it's totally online. You never, they never see a picture, you know, or a video of an actual person. It's just, it's almost yep. robotic um, and they're learning history and they never open a book. They never actually, look at a, um, document that they can learn so much from that, that, um, first person experience. And it's, it's just sad because that's really what history is about is going to that first person and, and, you know, what was their experience and learning from that. And, um, yeah, that's one of the reasons I love history is because it, it can go so deep. So
1: Yeah, the virtual space is hard because we can put our texts online, but reading on a screen has its own pitfalls. And, you know, we can try to reach a lot of students with good content, but it's really hard to navigate. Well, to what extent do we require that they open a physical book or go to their library or make it easy and do everything within the, you know, platform that the course is is housed on? Those are all conversations we have. And try to navigate um, because, you know, we, we probably have some, some sort of old school values and trying to uh, negotiate and, and integrate those into this setting it takes uh, lots of revisiting of conversations.
0: Yeah, I bet, I bet. I know parents all over are having those conversations about, okay, how do we do this? How do we protect our kids? And also expose them to everything they need to be exposed in order to be, you know, functioning adults and safe in the world.
1: So. Yeah, I, I uh, am sympathetic <laughs> <laughs> except to buy one of our courses. That's the easy answer. Buy our- <laughs> yes, yes, we'll I like that.
0: Yeah, now I know I want to go back to you in China because... Yeah. I your story in China it ended i mean you you and your and your family your family was with you in China when covid hit right
1: yeah um so i was teaching at an ib school in beijing um covid had kind of been you know information about it had been percolating for a few weeks um i think we learned it's, the timeline is a little foggy, but maybe December or January, there's you know, something going on in Wuhan. We had a basketball tournament. I was coaching the boys' basketball team, and we were getting ready to go to Mongolia. We had tickets. We had passports. Everything was, was set to go. And then there was sort of like a, you got to put yourself in a pre-COVID space. It wasn't obvious that we were dealing with a pandemic. At least it wasn't publicly obvious to the average person. So it was like, oh, I don't know, maybe it'll get pushed back a week. Uh, Maybe we'll have to postpone until March. Or we had lots of plans. And um, so it was very, it's it's interesting to look back and realize how ignorant we were in January of 2020 when we thought "Ah, it'll probably blow over and we can keep the trip as scheduled or maybe it'll just be postponed. And then to realize within six weeks, schools are closed. Airports are closed. Airlines are canceling flights. All of this. The most nerve-wracking part was just um, my wife and kids wanted to go home, you know, at least temporarily. We didn't know how long this was going to last, but didn't want to be stuck in our small apartment in Beijing for, you know, three months if if everything, all the social world that we were a part of was going to be closed down. So it was very hard to find a flight, and it was very expensive, and we had several flights that we booked that didn't actually exist it just systems hadn't been updated and um you know so navigating that was a little stressful but they left and I stayed for another I'm not sure a month or two um just teaching online and living in the apartment and, and then uh, eventually decided I'll just teach from home and so flew home and then we we were already leaning toward or maybe had decided not to renew our contract and it it just was a natural breaking point to say we're home. It's hard to go back. We don't want to teach online, and so I've been doing the automatic professor ever since then, summer of 2020.
0: Yeah, I mean, COVID affected the entire world, and I mean now, I mean it's still, it's still out there, but it is a history for us to look back at and learn from, and um, so I just find it fascinating. hear your story thank you so much for sharing it
1: yeah it'll be an interesting uh you know event in the textbooks uh, 30 or 40 years from now we'll see how people interpret it
0: (laughs) (laughs) that is going to be interesting i'm I'm looking forward to seeing (laughs) what what is being in there it's gonna be yeah that'll be interesting well, Nate, thank you so much for sharing your genius with us today. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to um, you know, put out that uh, wonderful presentation that you've shared with us on the uh, Realizing Genius conference coming up in February.
1: Yeah, appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for tuning into another episode of the Realizing Genius podcast. <laughs> Head over to realizinggenius.com forward slash podcast for all the show notes and links and to share your ideas of anyone you would like to have me interview. Have a wonderful week realizing your genius.